Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Have you filled out your 2020 census form? You've got just a few weeks left. This year, many people chose to respond online. But on September 30th, the U.S. Census will end its count of every resident a month early. Today, where we live, we consider Connecticut's response rates, especially in cities like Waterbury and Bridgeport, where only half of all their residents have responded. Coming up, we talk with outreach workers in those cities about the ways they're trying to educate residents about the importance of filling out the 2020 census. We'll also hear from a reporter about the concerns from the statistical community about the decennial census. Will Congress try to extend the census to help get an accurate count? Also, have you filled out your census form? Why or why not? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm going to welcome the first guest to our show on Zoom. Melissa Blasini is Community Census Outreach Coordinator for the Waterbury Complete Count Committee. Melissa, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So by now, um, every resident should have received at least mail instructions about how to complete the census. I mentioned this year it's been easier than ever before. People could go online. But when we look at response rates around our state, there are many Connecticut residents who haven't responded. You've been working in the city of Waterbury. Uh, Tell us at this point uh, how many Waterbury residents have been counted. Well, right now, as far as Waterbury, we're at 54.7%, and that was as of yesterday. And 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 how does... uh, Go ahead. 3.1% of that has been in efforts of the door knocking. Mm. And so that is the effort that's going on right now. And we're, when we think about uh, the money that's used uh, every 10 years uh, to get this accurate headcount, uh, the work that you and others are doing on the ground, it's really important to get people to respond. When you think back uh, to the 2010 census, how does the response rate in Waterbury compare? Well, we are definitely below the rate of 2010. We have been doing it based on tracks to try and reach the hard to count areas because we're raising those rates in the hard to count um, tracks, which is more like our zip codes, but for mm-hmm. census is called tracks. Once we raise those rates within the tracks, then we'll be able to raise the overall rate. Um, mm-hmm. Back in 2010, Waterbury was the lowest in the heart to count and then we became the highest here for 2020. When you look at the tracks or the the neighborhoods or zip codes in Waterbury that haven't responded, tell us more about those particular areas of your city. Well, from what we've seen as far as the people who have not filled out their census yet from engagement through our efforts, um, a lot of people do not want to fill out their census because lack of, of, of knowledge 
of what the census is really about and how imperative it is to the sustainability of our cities, towns, and states. Um, I don't even think that they understand how it even backs up into the seats for the presidential election. Mm. A lot of what we've heard from community members is, you know, how do they benefit from filling out the census? What are they getting out of it? Mm, that's you know, interesting. I know that um, Fernando even interacted with someone and was trying to explain to them how important it was. And the person said they do not benefit from it, but yet they went and paid for their groceries with an EBT card. Mm. So we mentioned Fernando. So he's part of your team uh, of the Waterbury's Complete Count Committee. How many of there are you uh, in terms of you're the outreach coordinator? How many people are on the ground helping you right now, Melissa? Well, in my uh, direct team, it is Fernando and I, and it has been Fernando and I since March, where we were able to, you know, help with the rates from 5% up into the 50-something percent that it is now. Um, there are other partners. Uh, Neighborhood Housing Services of Waterbury has been huge. Uh, Connecticut Community Foundation, uh, United Way. These are the groups that came together in order to hire Fernando and I to do the work that we've been doing. And we are the only um, individuals in any city or town that are doing this work, which is kind of a liaison between the census and all other partners. Other partners are also NAACP, uh, Bridge to Success, now has been phenomenal. So it, it is a lot of other organizations, including nonprofit organizations and non-nonprofit organs, organizations like UnGroup and The Hub and... Um, a lot of other organizations that have been coming together, because that's one thing I can say about Waterbury. Waterbury definitely steps up and steps out and tries to make sure that we try and get the message to the people. But what we're seeing across the board is that the people do not want to get counted. And, and I think it is counterproductive in, in why they don't want to be counted, which is um, anger and and anger from from various issues that are going on from from post COVID, you know, mm -hmm. and people not wanting to to fill out their census because they they don't understand what the census is about. Mm -hmm. Also, they feel that the government is not really meeting their needs. So they feel that they are raising their voice by doing this, whereas what they're doing is a dis how do you say they doing they they making a disadvantage to themselves mm. and to the, their families and their communities because if we look at the numbers per adult is 2900 if you look at a family of 5 you're calculating 2900 times 2 per adult and that's 5800 when you incorporate three children in school that's 28000 per child times 3 that's 84000 when you add the 5,800 for the parents with the 84,000 of the children in school, that is 89,800 per year. Mm. You're talking about the federal. I, you're talking about the federal money that comes yes, into the city the of Waterbury. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm jumping. That's 889,000 
for 10 years for a family of five. So my point is that families and individuals in our community are doing a disservice to themselves by not filling out the census because they don't understand that this is for them and not against them. You're hearing Melissa Blasini. She's Community Census Outreach Coordinator for the Waterbury Complete Count Committee. As we talk about this a deadline, the U.S. Census Bureau is ending the, the decennial census count at the end of the month. It's actually a month earlier, and we wanted to find out the impact on cities like Waterbury. Uh, many of Connecticut's cities, Melissa, um, are hard to count. Uh, Hartford, Connecticut has the the lowest self-response rate, um, actually, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, when we look at the nation. And so when we think about hard to count, you're walking us through some of the reasons why people don't want to cooperate. But tell us more about some of the outreach that you're doing. So locally, you and Fernando are working to get the word out about the importance of the census. And then you have U.S. Census Bureau workers that are actually knocking on doors, these enumerators trying to get an accurate count. Yes. So some of the, some of our efforts have been um, in even COVID. We go out to the stores. We go out to the supermarkets. We've been looking at it as far as needs, needs of the community, practices of the community, and wants of the community. And that's how we've been targeting our efforts to try and reach the community where they're at. Some of their needs would be, you know, going to the doctor, Uh, Some of their practices would be, you know, going to church. Uh, Some of their wants would be, um, I don't know, going to to get a tattoo. Um, So we've been going into these places, including um, barbershops and and, um, nail salons and, you know, the pharmacy. We've been going anywhere that allows us to come in including the pop-up locations, uh, three supermarkets, Cherry Valley, Compare Foods, and Pueblo, where we've given out gift certificates for people to fill out their census, or rather help them fill out their census, giving them an incentive to fill it out. Um, Because it's sad to say, but most people don't want to do things unless they actually feel that they're benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. We also had a 2020 campaign where we asked 20 people to call 20 other people and have those 20 people reach out to 20 people to let them know, you know, why is it important to fill out the census and Mm -hmm. how it's directly connected to programs, resources and services that are federally funded. Uh, We've had eye-catching devices. Uh, We've had a van go out into the community where we're giving the message in English, Spanish, and Albanian because we do have a large uh, population of Albanian. We've had an audio, email, and text system sending out uh, messages to a database of over 35,000 people here in Waterbury. We uh, created a Facebook page, uh, Latinos in Waterbury, to try and reach uh, the Spanish population because they are 60% of the population mm. here in Waterbury. Melissa, um, can so, I ask uh, Can I ask you how the population has changed just in the last 10 years? You mentioned that six out of 10 Waterbury residents are Hispanic. Tell us about um, how the population has changed. Well, if you look at what happened in Puerto Rico with Maria, we've had a lot of families that have came here. And um, that has changed the dynamics as well. Uh, We have people from Brazil. We have people from Mexico. We have 
we have people from um, Ecuador. We have so many different um, diverse Latino communities here in Waterbury, which backs up into the immigration concerns as well. Um, so it, it's it's been it's been um, it's been difficult because one people do not want to do it. We have to educate them as well. So we have to be in spaces where it's safe, but at the same time, mm. be able to reach as many people as possible. We even had a, a campaign that um, actually Fernando had devised is called a graduate program where we didn't have funding for it, but it was to try and get graduates post COVID to be engaged and empowered um, and educated because we know that in 2030, they're gonna be the ones filling it out or even now in 2020. So the project was basically to give each graduate a raffle ticket to win a car and or other, well not and, but other prizes. And for every graduate they brought, they got another ticket for every person they filled out or helped filled out, not fill out, but helped filled out the census, they got a ticket. So we were trying to get them engaged, but ask, actually help bring up the numbers. We Melissa, to- uh, Melissa, I wanted to ask you, this, the, all these different uh, efforts uh, sound really interesting and important, like you said, going to where they are. But I'm curious, because you were in this pandemic, how that has further complicated, uh, you know, going to people uh, and doing the work that you and Fernando are doing. Can you talk us through what you've experienced? Sure. Um, the funding has changed post the pandemic, um, but that did not stop our efforts. We just adjusted to the change and we were even out there during the pandemic. We made sure that we had masks and everything else and we still went out to to the places that were open. We made sure we maximized on those opportunities and didn't stop. But um, the pandemic has posed a huge constraints in, in funding. Mm. Well, in terms of just social interaction, are people less likely to want to maybe answer the door because they don't want to be near someone that they may not know because we have to be masked and, and maintain social distance? Have you experienced any of that? Absolutely. We have also uh, gone out into different buildings where there's a lot of residents, obviously, and they have told us they don't want to open the door. Why? Because we have always told even our elderly, make sure you do not open the door to people you don't know. You know, unfortunately, with times like this, this is when people try and take advantage of others and use this as a platform to try and get money out of them. So people are not opening the door either for that. Uh, because of them being scared because of the COVID and them being high risk. And some people are just opening the door and slamming the door and saying they're not interested. Even if we put things under their door, they're pushing things under. But again, you know, we're not stopping. We're continuing to push forward and we're trying to raise the rates. We've had various uh, events, including other partners, where they've had or we've had, you know, large amount of people come out and, Let's say there's 175 people that come out. Only 30 people fill out their census. So it, it's it's been difficult. 
You're hearing Melissa Blasini again. She's Community Census Outreach Coordinator for the Waterbury Complete Count Committee. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll continue speaking with Melissa after the break. We're also going to find out more about what's at stake if the 2020 census doesn't get an accurate head count again. Uh, it's, the count is ending later this month, uh, a month earlier uh, than expected. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677. Tell us why you filled out the census form or maybe some of the reservations you may have. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The U.S. Census Bureau ends its count later this month, but NPR reported recently the Bureau's own analysis finds this shortened schedule, quote, increases the risk of serious errors in the results for the national headcount. So what's at stake? Joining us now with more on Zoom is Jeffrey Mervis. He's senior correspondent for Science Magazine, where he covers the intersection of science and government. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've described the decennial census as uh, really the gold standard for demographic information. Uh, we know every 10 years uh, we, they try to get as, uh, an accurate headcount of, of everyone living in the United States. When we look back to the, the 2010 census, how close were they to, to get a high percentage of residents counted? Um, well, the 2010 census, as previous censuses, did pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, but the key uh, is something that Melissa had uh, mentioned, which is about two thirds of the people fill out the census when it first comes out. They are called self-responders. The reason the census costs $16 billion, it's the largest civilian exercise that the federal government carries out, is to follow up and track down that one third of the population that hasn't responded. So that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where uh, the scientists are concerned that this time around, the census is not going to be able to do the job right. So tell us more about their concern. So with just a few weeks left, you have U.S. Census uh, Bureau employees knocking on doors, trying to get that one third counted. Uh, so walk us through their concerns about are they going to be able to do it before the, September 30th? Right. Right. So that's the question. So originally, the uh, Census Bureau had said that they needed more time once the uh, COVID pandemic arrived and it prevented field workers from going out and knocking on those doors. And so they asked for a four month extension. And originally the Trump administration supported that, but a couple months later they changed their mind and they said, no, we're going to stick to the original schedule. And that's why, as you referenced, instead of taking uh, 10 weeks, they're only going to take six weeks to do the follow-up effort. That compression really forces them to eliminate some extra things that they would do for quality control. The number of times they can go back to a house and, and uh, the outreach that uh, Melissa was describing. 
The other problem is that by ending early, they are also have less time to do the data analysis that they need to do in order to deliver the results by December 31st. So the scientists are asking Congress to give the Census Bureau a four month extension to do the job that it feels it needs to do. They're also asking for Congress to create an oversight body that will monitor the Census Bureau's progress in real time over these next weeks and months. When we look at the the messaging from the president uh, and others in his, in his administration, uh, you know, he wanted a citizenship question on the census, and that was the Supreme Court said that you couldn't do that. And so, you know, what are some of the reasons why the Census Bureau is ending a month early, Jeffrey? Right. So the citizenship question is is one of several actions that the social science community feels is threatening the integrity of the count. So the Constitution requires the Census Bureau to to do a census every 10 years. And the reason is to decide how many seats each state should get in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's called apportionment. And in order to do that, you need to count everybody. Um, What uh, happened when the Trump administration proposed putting a citizenship question on is it raised concerns that people who are feeling vulnerable, people who may not trust the government, people who feel that the government may use their information for other purposes, even though the census is required to keep it private, might not participate. And that would reduce the count. That would produce what they call an undercount. And it would produce it disproportionately among those groups who tend to be immigrants, uh, low income, and people of color. Um, More recently, the president issued an order that said, even after the census is done, he wants the Census Bureau to remove all undocumented residents from the count that they deliver for apportionment purposes. And scientists say that's difficult, if not impossible to do. And that's another uh, threat to the integrity of the census. Mm. A third threat is the recent uh, appointment of political appointees to the Census Bureau who had traditionally been a nonpartisan operation. And the scientists are very concerned that these appointees may sort of gum up the works, that they may be in uh, interfere with the process that the Census Bureau has planned for many years in order to carry out the census and then analyze the data. You're hearing Jeffrey Mervis on Zoom here on Where We Live. He's senior correspondent for Science Magazine. As we learn more about his reporting, how the statistical community feels about the U.S. uh, 2020 census ending early, the fact that every 10 years uh, the Constitution mandates an accurate headcount and the ramifications for not getting uh, the data that's needed uh, to understand the number of people who live in this country. And as Jeffrey mentioned, and 
one the money that you get from the federal government into your communities, also determining the number of seats in the U.S. House of Representatives for where you live. So when we look at the fact that, again, Jeffrey, the census is ending its count early and, and the other issues that you've raised, with less people counted, that means that how will they get the data to figure out exactly how many people are living in this country and and why is that a bad thing that they're going to have to try to pull this data from other places right so the the key is the disproportionate undercount Mm -hmm. everyone would like you know the count to be a hundred percent uh complete but that's you know that's very difficult just given the nature of our country and the mobility and the relationship that people have so what the census bureau tries to do and why it costs billions of dollars is to get as much information as they can from the field and then try to use very rigorous statistical methods to get information on people who haven't responded uh one way of doing that is by using what they call proxies which is sort of asking your neighbor asking uh, postal service um, officials and others who lives in that house, how many people live there, that sort of thing. A, another way is through a process what they call imputation, and that's taking uh, statistically reliable methods to estimate who lives at a particular address based on other demographic information about that area. And the last way is by using government records. All of us, you know, fill out lots of forms and that has information, whether it's in uh, tax records or employment records or other government agencies, but that has information about us. And in theory, uh, the information is there. In practice, it's very much more complicated. And the people who are least likely to respond to the census are also least likely to be in those existing government records. So those are the challenges that the Census Bureau has to face. And the less time it has to do all that work, the greater the risk of flaws in the outcome and the greater the risk that the count won't be complete and accurate. We heard from Aliyah on Twitter uh, who wrote, the point that people don't understand how they benefit is real. It doesn't help that the president and his administration have undermined its significance with fear tactics for people of color. I wanted to bring back into the conversation Melissa Blasini, uh, who is working in the Waterbury Complete Count Committee. Uh, Melissa, I'm wondering if you could respond to that comment and what Jeffrey has shared when uh, you see certain communities that will be left out of uh, this count, if not done correctly. Absolutely. And one thing we have to remember is that um, the numbers of our people is backed up into political power. So if our people are not counted, they're not going to be included. And then we're not going to be represented correctly. A lot of um, individuals who have gained fear through some of the Trump administration tactics, such as trying to get the censorship question in the beginning, or even 
um, thereafter trying to remove the immigrations from the tally of people that are counted into even now that the date change. Um, it, it's, it's alarming because in order for us to have enough funding for our programs, resources, and services that everyone benefits from directly and indirectly. Everyone has to be counted, especially with the post-COVID. You know, uh, there's gonna be plenty of needs that um, we're gonna have to provide to our community. And in order for us to be able to do that effectively and not be at a total or more deficit is to make sure we have our numbers. Um, and if we don't have our numbers, then the numbers are going to be used elsewhere, um, such as um, the blue states. You know, if, if we don't have our numbers to support the people that are here and we lose our seats, then we're not going to be able to really have a vote because some of those seats are going to be moved elsewhere. So it is, it, it is alarming because there are so many resources, services, and programs that our community benefit, benefit from before and will benefit from post-COVID. If we look at 2010, the numbers were undercounted. But back in 2010, um, we had to stretch, let's say, you know, money for, for 10. Money of five for 10. And now we're going to have to stretch it even more because one, we have not met those numbers. Two, we have people here that weren't here before, including people from Puerto Rico. Um, three, we have the COVID. Four, we have the storm. So there's so many different factors that are against us right now, and, and we need to get mm -hmm. counted. Uh, Jeff, you've written about this, uh, again, removing uh, the administration, uh, excluding uh, the number of those uh, who are immigrants or undocumented would hurt states with large immigrant populations, including Texas, California, Florida, where they could see, you know, losing a congressional seat. Yes. So the politics are actually kind of curious, because even though in general, most Republicans have supported what the administration has been doing. In, in fact, there are some red states, such as Texas, that have large numbers of undocumented residents, and their representation might be hurt. But in general, a lot of um, scientists and Democrats certainly feel that overall the administration feels that it is going to gain representation for Republicans if it excludes uh, non-citizens from the census. Um, another example to support what Melissa was saying about cutting corners is one thing that the uh, Census Bureau said they weren't going to be able to do this month is make sure that they had gone to all the places that they call group quarters. These are places with large numbers of people, uh, nursing homes, prisons, uh, college campuses. Uh, and again, this was the plan was to give the local officials an opportunity to make sure that all the addresses of those group quarters were on their lists and make sure they knocked on those doors. They're not going to do that because they don't have enough time. Um, and scientists are worried that that's just going to be another opportunity to come up short 
and have a less than accurate tally. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey, I wanted to ask you again, uh, with the September 30 uh, date uh, coming uh, quickly, besides uh, the door knockers, the field workers uh, that are uh, working right now as we speak, there are other follow-up exercises the Census Bureau undertakes that you've written about, um, something called a count review operation, I believe uh, you've reported that's been canceled. I'm just wondering what you're going to be watching out for? Uh, will Congress act? Uh, and, and is there a political will to do this count correctly? Right. No, that is the big question. And uh, there was a hearing in Congress about a month ago in which four former census directors asked Congress to create an oversight body. This would be a group of experts who would have access to census data on, on a real-time basis to find out how well the self-response follow-up was going, how much they were relying on proxies, whether there were certain areas, whether it's Waterbury or somewhere else, where the follow-up was still lagging. And if that was the case, uh, sort of raise the red flag in time to be able to do something about it. Uh, but it's not clear that Congress is going to be able to move fast enough to pass that legislation. It would require a law to create such a body, and then the Census Bureau would need to work with that body. Uh, it's also not clear that Congress is going to provide any extension beyond the September 30th deadline, um, because we're already into September and we're in an election season which is now at, at its peak. So all of those things are raising concerns that people may feel that this census is so flawed that we need to do it again uh, before 2030. Um, that's a, a controversial issue, but it's something that uh, you might wanna keep an eye out for because I think the more problems with this census the more of a groundswell there's going to be to try to correct whatever mistakes were made and not wait another 10 years. So has that ever happened before, Jeffrey, where you're talking about there could be possibly a recount before the next decennial census? Well, the only historical example is 100 years ago, the 1920 census uh, found that the population of the country was had shifted from rural to urban areas. And a lot of rural legislatures in Congress didn't like that. And so they voted not to accept the results from the 1920 census for apportionment purposes. So in effect, uh, that census was declared null and void. It was still available for research purposes but it wasn't used for apportionment. That was a unique situation, and I don't think anyone wants to go through that again 100 years later. $16 billion, uh, right, that, that they've right. been using to, to get it right the first time. That it, that would be controversial, I think, to many taxpayers. Uh, uh, Melissa Blasini, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation again. Uh, it really is crunch time for the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, tell us about some events that you have coming up in Waterbury uh, before September 30th. 
I didn't pull that up, but I did want to mention something backing into what Jeffrey was saying that I read according to the elections data service that at least 17 states will lose or gain seats after the 2020 census. Depending on the demographics, eight out of 10 will lose house seats. And from the Midwest and Northeast, which actually Northeast is where we're at, because it seems that the, even though the fastest growing states will gain seats, we still are growing in population. So it's just, it just, it's amazing that he brought up that example from 1920. I find it so interesting. In fact, I want to look into that uh, later, but it just, it just seems to reiterate what seems to be going on now. Mm. Well, Melissa, Blasini, as... uh, Melissa, Melissa Blasini, we're going to be taking a break, uh, but I wanted to thank uh, Jeffrey Mervis, senior correspondent for Science Magazine, where he covers the intersection of science and government. Uh, we'll keep an eye out on your, your future reporting, Jeffrey, to see how this all ends up. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to find out how local groups have been working with the undocumented population in Connecticut to get an accurate count of residents. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Friday, the history of protests and sports is long and complex. This is the first time we've seen a number of athletes and sports leagues banding together to call for police accountability. On the next Where We Live, we talk with athletes, including former UConn Husky Renee Montgomery, who set out the current WNBA season to focus on social justice. That conversation tomorrow. We hope you join us. Now, Hearst, Connecticut featured a story in August where reporter Justin Patrick profiled a woman who is undocumented. At first, she said she was fearful to respond to the U.S. Census. Her husband had been detained by ICE earlier in the year. She worried what the federal government would do with her information. But advocacy group Make the Road Connecticut helped change her mind. Joining us now on Zoom is Barbara Lopez, director of Make the Road Connecticut. It's an advocacy group for immigrant, Latinx, and working class communities in Bridgeport and Hartford. Barbara, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning, Lizzie. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned, uh, Hearst, Connecticut profiled uh, one woman, I believe, a member of your organization. Tell us more about Make the Road, Connecticut. Sure. Uh, so we are, like you said, we fight for power of the immigrant Latinx and communities of color in Bridgeport and Hartford because we know that we deserve dignity, uh, to live with dignity and to live with justice. Um, and we do this through organizing legal and survivor services leadership development and policy innovation and we truly tackle issues that impact us directly, which is around immigration reform, economic justice and education equity. Mm. So tell us when you talk with uh, members in your community, also in Hartford, uh, who may be undocumented, uh, why are they hesitant? What are they, what are they telling you? So I think that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, this current administration did, attempted to really 
instill fear and also has a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric um, and really attempted to make our communities invisible. So uh, the fear was based on this like national conversation and the reality of like families are getting separated and their communities are being torn. So I think that we firstly just understand that, that that is a reality. Um, and, and we create space where we can save space, where we can really dig deep and unpack um, that uh, really. Um, and I think that's the first thing that we did. Um, we acknowledged, we heard, we listened, and we created safe space to have those very hard conversations and to talk about those very hard realities of our people in Connecticut, even though people think Connecticut's very wealthy and very progressive, there's a lot of separation happening uh, on a day to day. So we just wanted to really create the safe space. Mm. So when you think about, uh, again, your members uh, who are in the undocumented population, how many of them have been convinced that, you know what, I should fill out this census form because it will help my children? Yeah, so I think for us, uh, you know, the stakes are too high not to participate in the census. Um, so I think once we unpacked um, the real fear and the real misconceptions around the census, we had uh, a lot of our members actually sit down and say, okay, what is the census? So we dug deep. We had a census uh, official who spoke, who came and, and, and spoke in Spanish and did a whole presentation in Spanish um, and really dig deep of the like, different levels of question and really understand how this information was going to be used. And listen, like a lot of our folks in Bridgeport and Hartford are living and going to school and working in places where they're underfunded, right? So they know, they see it firsthand when their kids don't have computers, especially in the pandemic or access to books or access to like open parks or are the last ones to get cleaned when the snowstorm hits. Um, so they really started to understand how uh, the attempt of this current administration to really make them invisible. So I think once we understood why the stakes were so high of why we need to be counted, and I think there was a piece around how can our voice, like if we're counted, we're really showing people power. Um, so I think we were able to shift um, the narrative for our members. I started the hour uh, talking about how Hartford has uh, one of the lowest um, self-response rates in the nation. And so now that we're getting up to this deadline for the U.S. Census Bureau to get an accurate headcount, uh, what is some of the, the ground, the grassroots efforts that you're doing now in these last weeks, Barbara? I think one of the things that we really, we really do really well, we really invest in our leaders. Um, and we understand that we have access to people who come into our space and they truly believe in people power who have filled um, the census that we've done various um, Facebook lives because of the pandemic and we've had different types of conversations. Um, but the real, the real magic is at the grassroots level. So in the beginning of the year, pre-COVID, we launched our own campaign around our families and friends count. And that really is understanding that uh, people on the ground, people in different, they don't go to places like Make the Road who are you know, working hard or who are just like not in these spaces normally, they are going to follow um, the leaders who they trust. So we understood that the power was with our leaders. So when they go into family gatherings or when they go to work or when they go to the laundromat or when they're in the park, 
we understood that they were the the vehicles of power to have those difficult conversations. And I think that has been really um, that has been really transformational for a lot of our member leaders saying, hey, I talked to my neighbor or my bestie and they weren't going to fill it out. But because I had a conversation with them, they're going to fill it out now or I helped them. I, I sat down with them and pulled up the site and helped them fill it out. Um, so that has been really the, the impact that we've seen firsthand. You know, we heard uh, again from Melissa earlier in the show talking about the importance of educating young people uh, because they'll be filling out the census possibly in 2030. And so I'm wondering if there are efforts uh, that uh, make the road or others uh, in your communities uh, that are interested in in maybe having schools help in the sense that if you're educating students about the importance of the census, they're going to tell their parents or grandparents why it's important to fill it out. Yeah, I think that we have. Uh, it's been really, it's been really amazing to see our young people. Our young people are just resilient and just are just amazing in so many ways. And a lot of our youth members and youth leaders really um, have been supporting their own parents and in filling out the census, but also have been stepping up and having the conversation around like, oh, I'm I'm 16 now, but the next time I fill it out, I'm going to be 26. So. Um, actually digging deep and like, what does that actually mean for my life? Um, and if we don't fill it out, like what are the, what I'm not going to have access to in the next 10 years. And our young people are going to grow up in Hartford and Bridgeport. So I think that yes, the school, having these conversations in school is a great place, but also recognizing that they're already doing it with their families um, and their friends. Um, so just recognizing and uplifting that. Uh, Barbara, there is a fear in the immigrant community, especially if someone is undocumented. They're fearful about opening the door who may be on the other side. And so how do you uh, talk through uh, that concern that maybe the person knocking on the door is a U.S. Census Bureau uh, field worker just trying to get the information out? How do you counsel them about when to open that door? Yeah, I mean, that that was, you know, that was the first things we were talking about last year. Like for many years, we've been telling our immigrant communities um, not to open their doors to anyone, especially uh, for ICE or police uh, officers without a judicial warrant. Um, and now we were telling them, yes, actually, if you see a census worker, um, you know, you should open. So we, we don't say just, just open the door. First, we always say, do what you feel comfortable with. If you see someone in your door, um, like ask who they are, like ask for a badge. But if you don't want to open the door, um, it's okay too. And there's other ways that we can help you fill out the census. So it's always where people feel the, the most comfort. Um, and also like walking them through, um, like there were census workers weren't coming in February, right? Um, our census workers weren't coming in March. So having those conversations around like when to expect people to come around, I think was very crucial mm-hmm. for us. And also always acknowledging whatever you feel comfortable with. If you don't feel comfortable opening the door, then don't open the door and we'll figure out how we mm-hmm. get you to fill out the census. You know, um, before we run out of time, earlier uh, this year, Barbara, we did a show and we focused on the fact that as a state, Connecticut doesn't spend any kind of money that they should in terms of getting an accurate headcount. The Harvard Foundation for Public Giving stepped in and that encouraged the state to contribute. But really, it's less than one third of the money needed to count every resident in the state of Connecticut. I'm just curious, as an advocacy group uh, doing the legwork, uh, how you've seen that um, that affect the work that you're doing. 
Yeah, so I think this was the first time that we uh, engaged in the conversation uh, around the census, and we actually got some support from the Hartford Community Foundation and Fairfield Community Foundation to do this work. I think for us, it's not just about the census, it's really about civic engagement. Um, it's our civic duty to fill out the census so we can show our people power, so we can stop this like attempt of like quieting our voices or just being dismissed. Like Connecticut is changing and our immigrant populations are help it thrive um, and our communities of color. So it's not just, you know, after the census end, we're gonna stop talking about it. We're gonna keep talking about how do we civically engage our young people, and then how do we include our immigrant communities in those conversations? But it sounds like if not for philanthropy, you're not getting support from, say, the Connecticut General Assembly. Lawmakers aren't supporting this advocacy work on the ground. I uh, not that I'm. I, I'm sure they are. I, I'm not directly aware of it. Um, but I think philanthropy did a great first step, and hopefully. Uh, you know, they continue to invest in civic engagement and in 10 years from now, they invest more. You just heard from Barbara Lopez, director of Make the Road Connecticut, an advocacy organization for communities in Bridgeport and Hartford. Barbara, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Also with us the, for the hour was Melissa Blasini, who is Community Census Outreach Coordinator for the Waterbury Complete Count Committee. Melissa, thank you so much for your time as well. Thank you for having me. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We hope you tune in for our show tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>